In this episode, Emma Pottinger is joined by Dr. Chand Nagpal, the former chair of the BMA Council. They're going to be discussing the significant changes over the last five years, both in general practice and the partnership model. Accountancy on Prescription by RBP, one of the leading firms of medical specialist accountants. We know what you find tough, but don't you worry, as we know our stuff. Welcome to this week's episode at Accountancy on Prescription. I'm Emma Pottinger, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Chand Nagpal, who's a GP partner in practice, and as a lot of our listeners will be aware, the former chair of the BMA Council. Hello, Chand. Hello, Emma. Delighted to be part of this podcast. Chand, we have worked together now for well over 25 years, and I know that, you know, you have had many strings to your bow. So would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been a GP partner for, gosh, 34 years. So in these over three decades, I've seen significant changes to general practice, the partnership model, changes to the GP contract, and so forth. I also have spent most of my professional life representing GPs. I was elected onto the National BMA GPs Committee in 1996. And then for six years, from 2007 to 2013, I was an executive member of the BMA GPs Committee. And then I chaired the BMA GPs Committee from 2013 to 2017. So I've spent a lot of my time both being a GP and representing the realities of general practice and trying to improve those experiences. I also chaired the BMA Council for five years from 2017 to 2022. So last year, when I ended my tenure, I came back to my practice as a substantive partner, having lead management role, and of course, doing clinical sessions. In the five years that I was BMA council chair, I had to, by definition, spend most of my time representing the wider medical profession. And I was literally keeping my hand in at the practice. So it's really great to be back over this last year. And in doing so, in some ways, I'm looking at general practice afresh within a way fresh eyes and that's why I feel quite determined to want to see some real changes before I retire this is the last phase of my career and I hear that is hot off the press that you've just taken on a new and very exciting role Yes, I stood to be a national council member on the Royal College of GPs. I'm delighted that last week I was elected onto the national council. It's a slight departure from the BMA role, which was very much political, because this is very much around the Royal College of GPs articulating and pressing for changes that give GPs the ability to provide safe quality care. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, And in addition to that, I was also elected a couple of weeks ago as chair of Harrow Local Medical Committee. And your listeners will know that local medical committees, LMCs, represent GPs in a borough. So not only am I representing Harrow, but I'm also representing Northwest London LMCs in dialogue with our integrated care board, the Northwest London ICB, on issues around digital transformation and primary and secondary care interface. And this is the reason I have been so excited about our podcast today. So with your wealth of knowledge and experience, I was hoping in our chat that you can share your reflections on all the changes that have faced GP practices over the years. 
Well, of course, there's been huge changes from the time that I started out in general practice where we were using paper records because there was no such thing as computerization and through the iterations of how general practice has developed into a very modern service, an expanded service. But, you know, I was quite struck in how much change occurred in the five years where I was not actively in my practice when I was BMA council chair and returned last August at just how the staffing and skill mix of staff we have has transformed. About a decade ago, we had partners, a couple of practice nurses and a practice manager and some staff. Now it's expanded into a huge team that includes, well, first of all, fewer GP partners. We've seen a real diminished numbers of GPs who want to be partners. And the other change I've seen is a real reduction in doctors wanting to be salaried. In the Northwest London, where I practice, you know, the biggest growth has been in doctors being freelance locums, but they are regular locums in several practices. That's because of the flexibility they have, but that's really been quite a stark change. Mm. Also, a range of other healthcare professionals doing the work or complementing the work of GPs, such as clinical pharmacists. We employed seven clinical pharmacists in our practice. We have first contact physiotherapists, advanced nurse practitioners. We have in our practice a single physician's associate, healthcare assistants doing the work that our nurses used to do. We have a pharmacy technician, social prescribers. So this is a huge change in literally a few years. We too have been surprised at the speed of change with the number of new types of staff working in practice these days. But I mean, this has a lot to do with the formation of PCNs, hasn't it? It certainly has accelerated this change. We, in fact, employed our first two pharmacists before PCNs came on stream because we could see that we needed that support for general practice. But what PCNs have done is through the government's ARS funding, which has been dedicated for these additional clinical roles, practices have therefore, or PCNs have taken on this expanded skill mix of healthcare workers. Mm. And the other thing that has happened through PCNs is the sharing of staff, where you can appoint or recruit staff to work across more than one practice in a way that may not have been feasible if you were only employing a staff for two days a week in your practice. So I've seen that as a positive development. But I do say that this comes with challenges because PCNs are not legal entities in most cases. And often you have a lead practice like our practice that is having to employ staff on behalf of other practices that carries with it legal risk, which has to be mitigated by legal agreements. You have to take on staff onto your practice payroll that incurs additional financial costs, including PAYE costs and so forth. So I think all of that has to be factored in. It has been a sharp learning curve for GPs to manage this change and train their team accordingly. Wouldn't you agree, Chand? Yes. I mean, this is a huge challenge and I do worry if practices are not putting in or recognizing the work involved in training these staff. I mean, we learned early on that these staff aren't just taken off the shelf to walk into general practice and provide a service in general practice. Many have not worked in GP practices before. Each GP practice or PCN works in different ways. So there is a responsibility to train and supervise staff In the case of physicians associates, they need to be debriefed. And in fact, other staff also need to be debriefed. And this all takes time and it's a cost and an expense that practices must factor in. Uh, So when you actually look at, for example, a pharmacist costing or a PA costing, maybe two thirds the cost of a salary GP or a locum, you've got to factor in that on top of that, the consultation times 
are longer, so they see fewer patients. The training, the supervision, the fact they may not conclude a consultation and still ask the GP to manage another bit or they interrupt the GP. In fact, I'm going to be doing an audit in my own practice to really look at the cost benefit because these are financial decisions that practices and PCNs need to be aware of. And isn't more funding coming through the PCNs too? Yeah, I mean, that's another real change that I've noticed that in the past, you know, when I first became a GPN for the first few decades, almost all of our income was coming from the GP contract. And that's why the national GP contract determined our take-home pay. What I've noticed now as a financial lead partner is so much more money and such a greater proportion is coming both channeled through the PCN, but also coming from schemes that are through our integrated care board. It used to be from our borough team, but now it's moved to the ICB level. And those schemes actually make a bigger difference in terms of our take-home pay because they're not fixed sums of money like capitation fees. If you don't achieve those KPIs or what's required, that can have a significant impact on the practice's income and its ability to be solvent or to actually function effectively. So that itself, I found, needs a lot of time because delivering on those requirements needs clinical leadership. Yes, we are always talking about the importance of cost-benefit analysis when our clients are considering signing up to, you know, offer any new services. So do you think PCNs are working well in supporting practices? Firstly, if it was me, I wouldn't be channeling so much money through PCNs. It's just adding another hurdle for core GP funding. But whilst we do have PCNs, what I think is vital is to make sure that PCNs remind themselves that their first priority must be to support GP practices and to support resourcing of GP practices. And that requires each GP practice, because each practice has a PCN lead, to make that demand on their PCN and through their PCN meetings. And so in our PCN, for example, they have resourced an e-hub where staff do all the work for online consultations on behalf of three practices. They make appointments on our behalf, and it's actually taken significant workload away from our own practice staff. So in some ways, that is real core funding. And I can think of many other imaginative ways. And what I believe needs to happen is that PCNs must just be facing their GP practices rather than perhaps facing some of the more, you know, strategic sort of initiatives that the ICB may want. I mean, first and foremost, stabilize your practice and channel as much money and resource, or even if it's resource in kind with staffing into your practices. So going back to general practice, how would you say the actual role of a GP has changed since you started? Oh, it has transformed to an almost unrecognizable manner. I mean, you know, when I started, the job of being a partner was actually doing clinical sessions. There was very little management in terms of, there was no such thing as CQC compliance. There was no such thing as a range of income streams that were determined at a local level. You didn't have a very large skill mix of staff and so forth. And you didn't have issues like the level of regulation of how practices need to operate from information, governance requirements, GDPR, I could go on. So running an organization as a GP practice now carries huge responsibility. And If things don't go right, unfortunately, the onus rests upon GPs. Even, for example, getting an HR issue wrong, and if a practice is taken to a practice tribunal, it is the partners who are liable. So I believe that to some degree, that 
onus responsibility is a reason why many don't want to be partners. But the other problem is the government and NHS England have not recognized that, in fact, the responsibility of being a partner needs to be resourced properly. It's something I've been campaigning for a long time. But I think, you know, there's no getting away from the fact that if you are a GP partner, you have to be cognizant of those responsibilities and you need to factor that into your working time, which is why I'm now seeing increasing numbers of practices where GP partners are taking on like a medical director role, calling themselves executive partners or management partners. And in fact, if you didn't allocate that management time to some of your partners, a practice would, I believe, not be able to run as effectively as possible. You know, we were just talking about taking on these new clinical roles from pharmacists to PAs or ANPs. In fact, to get the most productive use of them, you need to have a lead partner who has the management time to ensure that they're properly trained, to then monitor those consultations are effective, to make sure that patients are actually not, for example, seeing a physiotherapist in the practice and going back to see a GP. That needs a clinical brain. We recognise this, and this was one of the reasons RBP changed our business model to support our clients. You know, some examples are our new visual five-year statistical analysis reports, you know, moving our clients to zero and encouraging them to outsource their bookkeeping with RBP cloud accounting. You know, our clients have got real-time information at their fingertips throughout the year. Yeah. I mean, again, we've seen enormous change in our own practice over this. I mean, there was a time we were using, in fact, the software prior to Zero Iris. And yes. you know, it was highly time consuming because there was no bank feed. You had to cross-refer from bank statements to the software. We were doing our own payroll using Sage. And what we discovered is that the time that our practice manager was spending on all of this was taking like two or three, maybe more days every month. And also it had greater risk of making errors. So zero has been a very positive development. But I would say that it's important if a practice is to be doing the bookkeeping themselves, they should be properly trained and avail of the productivity that the software uh, offers or make a decision to outsource the bookkeeping. We've outsourced our payroll. And I still come across many GPs where their managers are basically, you know, doing a sage payroll every month. Now, it's for each practice to decide and the expertise of managers. But for us, at least, I have to say it really was the right decision to free up our practice manager from that workload of payroll. And we get a really great service. So how would you say you could optimize the efficiency of the practice in respect of the income and expenses? Well, first of all, it's really important that practices do avail of any opportunities for income and then, of course, make sure that that is cost effective to provide like an enhanced service. But there are also other opportunities that keep coming up with the ICB, such as recently the funding for cloud-based telephony, sometimes support in terms of management support for practices and so forth. It's really important, I think, to do that. But on top of that, of course, you need to make sure that the resource you are receiving is used in the most efficient, cost-efficient way as well as reducing expenses. And one of the most important elements here is staffing. Staffing is probably the highest cost for any GP practice. And you need to use your staff efficiently. And I applied the principle of subsidiarity and make sure that everyone works at the appropriate license of their skills. And if something can be done by someone else at a lower denomination of expertise, that should be done by that person. So in fact, if, for example, GPs don't need to do certain tasks that can be done by a pharmacist, that's what should be implemented. Similarly, if there are tasks that pharmacists shouldn't need to do, but a pharmacy technician can do, 
that's what needs to be done. We've tried to, in our practice, as well as many other practices, try to create such a structure so that you minimize expensive staff doing work that they don't need to do. The same applies to practice management time as well. So the second is to actually reduce the demand of workload in general practice. And we all know that GP practices are being overloaded by appointments, many of which don't need to come our way. So we've certainly trying to employ strategies in our practice to reduce that, whether it's the use of online tools or whether we're now trying to expand the use of NHS app amongst patients, because you know many patients will come and see a GP, for example, just to know what their test result was. But in fact, if they're happy to use an NHS app, they wouldn't need to make that appointment because they can see the result on their phone. It's a small example. We also are using text messaging. We use a software called AccuRx, but there are others which give patients much more information that should avoid them having to phone the surgery or make an appointment to see a healthcare professional. Much more opportunities to use technology to self-book again. That's avoiding our own staff having to pick up the phone or someone walk into the practice simply to make an appointment. So I think there's a combination of reducing demand. And remember, if you reduce demand, you need less staff time Less staff time means less cost. And a a lot of practices as well, I don't know if you agree, are complaining about the work pushed on them from the hospitals. Oh, that is a huge problem. In fact, I wrote a whole article about this in Pulse last year, if any of your listeners want to look at it, because it's been estimated 27% of GP appointments are avoidable and that they're largely caused by bureaucratic demands from hospitals or because patients are waiting in queues for hospital appointments that they don't know about, they come to the GP to chase those up, etc. All of this is a very real cost to our practices in terms of staff time. Not just GP appointments are taken up, but also our referral teams, our reception staff, our call handlers are taking volumes of calls on these issues. And this is something I'm still campaigning hard about. And I hope that even in fact, my Royal College of GP National Council role will also highlight that this is affecting not just finances, but the running of our practice. It needs to be addressed. I mean, we talked earlier about training the team, but there's also the element of training the patients. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And there's huge potential about patients being enabled to make use of GP practice in the right way and not need to come to see us, you know, in other instances, but also actually being empowered to look after their own health. How would you say IT has advanced to enable practices to evolve in these changes? Oh, it has advanced to almost an unrecognisable degree in the last decade and much more so in the last few years with the pandemic. You know, one is that GP estate, we've outgrown our estate. So there's been a move to remote working in a way that we never had before. And we're now able to, and we have to actually run some of our sessions remotely, but that can work quite seamlessly. The second is that the NHS app, for example, which was very embryonic two or three years ago, has become a tool for patients where they can see their test results, where they can see now information about their hospital results and letters. And that has the potential to save significant GP appointments. Save a lot of time. Absolutely. So I think there's huge potential for technology. There's also potential for GPs themselves. I mean, I've introduced voice dictation in my own clinics and it has saved me so much time in having to type things 
things out. It's just so much faster and it's very accurate, including the administrative stuff that like letters that I have to write, et cetera, just now so much quicker. There's also a move towards automating a lot of processes in GP practices. We're looking at, for example, some software that can automate the filing of normal results. At the moment, we're employing staff to go through those test results every day. So we're in a very fast moving environment where technology really could save us time, but also save us staffing costs. As we know, things have changed enormously over the last five years, and we could chat about this all day. Yeah, you're right. And they will continue to change. Thank you so much, Chand, for sharing your insights with us. And hopefully you can come back soon on our show and we can chat some more. It's been an absolute pleasure, Emma, and look forward to keeping in touch. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have not already done so, please, can you kindly like and subscribe and share with your colleagues? Bye for now. You have been listening to RBP's Accountancy on Prescription podcast. For any updates, please visit www.rbp.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at RBPCA. The contents of this podcast is for general guidance and informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of advice. The information provided by RBP is of a general nature. Appropriate and tailored advice or independent research should be obtained before making any decisions. RBP does not accept any liability for any loss or damage which is incurred from you acting or not acting as a result of listening to Accountancy on Prescription.